Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, the series of conversations with academics, advisors, entrepreneurs and activists, people all championing those ideas on the margins, the periphery. Why is this important? Well, as the systems on which we've depended for the last 50, 60 stroke thousand years crumble and creak, people increasingly looking for new stories, new ideas, new myths, if you like, that might guide and inform how they live and work. So in these conversations, we take time to speak to those people who are championing the ideas on the margins, championing the ideas on the periphery, those ideas which are going to shape the mainstream tomorrow. Uh, And our hope is that you're a little bit inspired, a little bit curious enough to take some of these ideas and bring them back to the day-to-day of your work and your life. Uh, Gus, thank you for joining me on Peripheral Thinking. Thanks, Van. Very excited to be here. And so uh, where we, you say, we say we're here, so we're not in the same place, obviously. Where are you as we speak today? I'm in Melbourne in Australia, so it's about seven, uh, almost 8 o'clock p.m. Very good, yeah. So just about 9 a.m. in the morning. So we are at that sort of time with, uh, with people in Australia where we're sort of pretty close to just the, the complete opposites, aren't we? So we've got, we're down to 11, we're, we're up to 11 hours time difference. You are kind of hurtling into the warms of summer we are kind of hurtling into the darks of winter. That's correct. Um, and so uh, we actually met a few years ago because at the time you were working for Hassel, which is the firm that took over my, my old firm, Free State. Uh, and I think we kind of met briefly over over that time. Uh, and then we, we kind of reconnected recently. Uh, we were put back in touch by a mutual friend, colleague, contact Steve Costa, uh, who I think you you kind of got back in touch with. And Steve reminded me uh, of the book that you had written, um, which I was sort of aware of because I think you'd shared it with me about a year or so ago. What was? Why don't we start there? What was the book that you wrote? Well, the book that I wore, uh, wrote is called The Pilgrim's Guide to the Workplace. And uh, it's a, there's a story behind it. So back at the time that I was working at Hassel, I was, uh, I'm a workplace architect and researcher. I'm a one-trick pony in the sense that the only thing that I do is study work and then the environments that contain it, uh, so the workplace. And uh, because of that, I do a lot of research with social network, uh, social network analysis. And I, I'm based in Melbourne, and I was traveling with quite a lot of frequency to Sydney to present the, research, the results of the research around uh, using social network analysis and how, as architects, as designers, we tend to design environments that connects everybody with everybody. We believe that collaboration is going to lead to innovation, right? And I was traveling with so much frequency that I have seen all the movies <laughs> on the plane that I, one day I thought, well, I'm going to start reading. And I was reading from all the books, a book that talked about the um, theory of evolution. And they were describing... Um, the iguanas in the Galapagos Island. So they were saying that it is um, the iguanas in the Galapagos Islands have evolved very differently through millions of years because the isolation of one iguana uh, did prevented to uh, interact with the other. There was a sea in the middle and they could not uh, interact. And as I was reading uh, that, I read a paragraph that really changed my view on how to design workplaces. It says that all the variety of species, not only iguanas, but species that we have on Earth, are because of isolation. That isolation creates diversity of species. And while I was reading that in the plane, then I thought, could the same apply to ideas? Can 
isolation lead to diversity of ideas? Because then I thought that what we have between Melbourne and Sydney is equivalent of a very prolific colony of ideas, like if they were colony of iguanas, they multiply, but there are a lot of them, but all from the same strand. There's not diversity between them. And the only sea uh, going iguana in the world is in the Galapagos Islands. So I thought that in this overconnected world, what, what is the uh, equivalent of the uh, seagoing uh, iguana that we're missing? What is that idea that is a victim of uh, increased connection? So still on the plane, I, I could not stop thinking about what type of society will we have if next time I had an idea or I wanted to discuss something with my boss back then in Sydney, instead of picking up the phone or sending an email or indeed taking a flight, I will have to sit with that idea for the time that it took me to walk from Melbourne to Sydney. At that time, I didn't even know if that was possible, if you could walk it or, or, or how long it will take. It just was a thought experiment. And of course, I landed and I was um, uh, in bed still thinking about uh, visualizing ideas as, as if they were creatures created by isolation and different societies that evolved about all that. Of course, I woke up, had a very strong coffee the next morning, and I thought that was crazy. No, who, who does that? But from all the crazy ideas that I have, that stayed with me because this was pre-pandemic. This was 2016 and took me uh, two months to share the idea of, of this thing that I was thinking to a very good friend, Mark Ray, which you also know. Because who, <laughs> who the hell in the right frame of mind walks from Melbourne to Sydney to incubate an idea because they read a book about iguanas in the Galapagos Islands? So it was so outlandish that even verbalizing that took courage. Uh, so eventually after two months, I was able to tell someone else but it took me two years to actually tie my boots because, again, one thing is saying that, but am I actually going to do this? But at the time, I don't know if you remember or your audience remember this, but 2016, it was activity-based working, open plan. We were in a, like an echo chamber of ideas about work and the workplace. And perhaps because I was already thinking about diversity of ideas, I was more sensitive to that. So I said, you know what? One uh, conference too many on ABW was enough for me to time, uh, start training. So I trained for a couple of months and um, I took two months off work. I didn't know if I gonna was going to use more, all of it, some of it, or even need more. But I said, maybe two months, one month is not enough. Two months seems about right. And I started walking. And then I started my, uh, my walk from uh, Federation Square. And my destination was the Sydney Opera House. So that, that was the idea. And there's a, a gallery, which is a, not even a kilometer away from, uh, from where I started, from uh, Federation Square. And at that point, it hit me, you know, like, because uh, I was already with my backpack and uh, and there are some images in the book that people will see me. I had two backpacks, one at the front, one at the back, because uh, part of this was to do it in isolation, you know, 
completely uh, autosufficient. So I had to carry my water, my food. And by the time I reached the gallery, which is less than a kilometer, I said, what am I doing? You know, and then I start putting a pressure on me of trying to think of, you know, the future of work and, and, and the type of things that I'm thinking are just ridiculous, you know, like it's like when someone asks you to tell a joke uh, and you tell the most lame joke because uh, of the pressure. So the same. So it was not until I actually was able to relax that uh, remove the pressure when I said, you know what, maybe I go all the way to Sydney without any new ideas. Uh, but that's when the process started to work. So you basically, um, the, the kind of sequence in your mind is the insight, which is the, you know, the reason kind of Galapagos sort of, or the species in the Galapagos evolved as they did was because of isolation. And so making the leap, which says, well, maybe uh, the kind of, you know, a greater diversity of ideas requires a similar, um, similar context. So ideas to exist in isolation for a longer period of time. But I guess even that alone is in a way, uh, I'm kind of reluctant to use the word revolutionary because clearly not sort of revolutionary in the kind of, in that sort of broad context. But that, that's quite a countercultural idea, isn't it? Because we exist in, you know, you were talking about in the context of just creating workplaces that there are echo chambers. And of course, echo chambers, you know, define most of how most of us live today, really, uh, whether it's political echo chambers, social echo chambers, well, you know, commercial organisational echo chambers, whatever it might be. And th this kind of idea that um, a diversity of ideas is about ideas being in isolation, uh, that feels quite countercultural just as an idea in and of itself. Yes, um, and funny enough, so as I was doing that, I didn't know this, but... In 2018, I was doing my walk, and in 2018, researchers from Harvard Business School were grappling with the same question, uh, do we collaborate too much? And they uh, tackled it a little bit more structured than I did, not walking to Sydney, but uh, they did experiments. And what they found is that socialization reduces exploration. So when you socialize an idea, uh, it reduces the exploration of creating new ones. So... Uh, what it does, it's, they did a series of experiments, very interesting. I, I mentioned them in, in the book. Um, so what socialization or discussing ideas do is they lower the ceiling of the best uh, unique idea that you can have. But what also it does, and that's why perhaps organizations like it so much, is because it's also raised the floor of the worst idea possible. So pretty much you're not going to have the best one, but you're not going to have the worst idea because whoever comes with the worst one, someone else will say, you know, that's, that's nonsense. Um, so that will moderate. So And some organizations are very happy uh, living there. But I want... I was curious, as these researchers were, what it will take to get the best idea? And what they found, and this is before COVID, is uh, that intermittent isolation of employees from each other work, it's better to, come to, uh, to address complex problems. So it's not about isolation, because as I found also in my pilgrimage, um, it's not only about isolation, you need to coordinate uh, the absurd. So my view, uh, uh, they, they, what they, this is my finding, not the researchers. Uh, 
what isolation of my pilgrimage allowed me to do was to explore the absurd. Because when you think about these things, uh, you do it in a different way, the, not the rational way. Um, you allow the, your idea to go places that in the logic world, in an office, which is an office attempted to rationality, uh, will not flourish. So you do end up with unusual ideas that then they need to be coordinated. And in the book, I explore uh, how much that needs to happen. A little bit of a rule of thumb is to spend 10% of the time in the absurd and 90% of the time in the coordination. Uh, because at the, end, at, the end of idea, at the end of the day, an idea needs to be adopted and requires a lot of, of, um, of coordination. So uh, this kind of idea that actually sort of spending time in the absurd kind of keeps you out of the kind of normal sort of tracks and grooves of your mind, which will which which is the kind of percolation time and the, the the sort of space and context in which an idea can explore itself somewhat. And so just say one other thing I was curious about. Um, so you were sort of talking about heading off on the on the walk with this this kind of one idea. So. You, you kind of, your, your intent heading into it is I'm going to walk from Melbourne, Sydney. And also we should probably just sort of clarify with people because if we haven't been to Australia, or maybe you've been to Australia, but you've only really sort of done that in an aeroplane, what kind of distances are we talking about here? Thousand kilometers. So um, the, the, it's a thousand Ks. So this is a shorter route inland, but I opted for the scenic route, not so much because of the scenery, but because there were more in, um, intermediate towns. Um, and again, as I mentioned before, because I needed to carry everything, I, I needed to refuel at the most every two or three days. And, and I will find towns more often on the coast that I will find uh, through the center. So roughly a thousand kilometers and uh, took me 42 days. Which it's an interesting insight in itself because the walk from Melbourne to Sydney took 42 days. But the pilgrimage, it started when I read the Iwanas. For me, I was already in the, uh, in the pilgrimage mode when I read the Iwanas and I'm still in it. So it's been years that I've been in this, in this pilgrimage. Um, uh, again, in the book, I made, um, a lot of, of, of parallels uh, and try to analyze the difference between uh, the difference between a walk and a pilgrimage and tasks and work. For example, there's a beautiful analogy that you progress a pilgrimage through the walk, just as you progress work through tasks. But the pilgrimage is what gives you sense of belonging or purpose or why you're doing it equally with um, with the, with work. Work is why you do it. The task is how you progress it. And the problem that I see with work play, the, the office is that for too long, we have been designing task places, not work places. Places to do tasks, places to walk, if you wish, but not to conduct pilgrimages. So how do you define what a pilgrimage is then? So if you, you've been on this pilgrimage for five years, which sort of started with the, the kind of shifting perspective, the revealing idea, which came from sort of um, the, the the Galapagos example. So, uh, and you sort of talk about it being uh, kind of ongoing since then. So, yeah, how how do you define a pilgrimage? So, for me, the walk I, I felt it on my legs. Uh, the pilgrimage occurred in my mind. Uh, now I believe, and and um, I also invite people, and I um, because people ask me, how can I do this without doing the walk? Well, you can actually 
engage in pilgrimage without walking. Uh, pilgrimage are exploration of ideas, of thoughts. Uh, walking is iconic, <laughs> manifestation of it. And, and I do believe that the sense of adventure and, uh, and, and walking contributes in a way of the outcome of the idea. But I also believe that you could do it um, without that manifestation. And well, I wrote the book. So I did the pilgrimage, uh, the, the walk. I did the walk in uh, 2018. But I started writing the book in 2020 with the pandemic. And during that time, our life became digital. Uh, work uh, and amongst the things I stumbled across uh, El Camino de Santiago online. So there's a very famous uh, pilgrimage in Spain. It's called Camino de Santiago, that it's from the border of France uh, to the edge of, of Spain, even to Portugal, all the way to the coast. Uh, many routes, but the typical one is the one on the north. And it's, they were offering an online version of it. Basically, what it involves is you walk whatever you want to walk. <laughs> uh, in my case, I was walking around my house. And you upload the steps and there's a map. <laughs> it's very basic. It's just plot where you're in the, in the map, right? But, but I did it uh, to see how that worked. And in a, in a way, what it created is it, it deconstructed the pilgrimage I was supposed to be doing it in, in Spain from the walk that I was doing in my home. So I was walking 16, 13,000 kilometers separation between the two of them. And the insights that I got, uh, because I follow the same rules, uh, I'm going to talk to you in a minute about the rules that I have during my walk. Um, I apply them in this uh, version as well. And I'm not, of course, I'm not going to say that I did it Santiago. <laughs> A pilgrimage, but I did did a pilgrimage in, in, in a way. So you can deconstruct it physically, the route from the pilgrimage itself, uh, but also then you can remove the walk altogether and uh, have exploration of the ideas in your mind. So I'm still in my pilgrimage. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to follow the, the lessons that came out of the, 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 the walk and evolved through the pilgrimage. I call them signposts. Because I believe that if you follow them, you arrive to a better place of work. And I'm still following those signposts uh, in my mind as if I'm doing a pilgrimage. So what are some of those signposts? So there are 34 of them. Uh, you can, there's a browser uh, if people um, don't have time to read the whole book or, or listen to it, because there's an audio version as well. Uh, you can just browse them. There are 34 um, the first one is um, what uh, got me in this, um, in this adventure, which is it tells us that we, we exchange ideas too early and too often and that that hinders innovation. Um, the second one is that absurdity should be promoted in, in the workplace. Uh, and it goes like that. So it explores... Uh, um, the role of adversity, the, the beauty of boredom. Uh, again, things that we do not necessarily associate with the way we design the workplace. They're absurd. It's not even how we design the workplace. It's not what we identify or associate with work, full stop. Yes. You know, it's like, because in a way, I guess, part of the reason that um, 
the workplace evolved to being like a task place, as you were talking about, is because of the very narrow way in which most companies are managed and run and led, which are about tasks <laughs> and, you know, uh, and sort of actually removing ingenuity, which, which of course kind of follows, you know, it's the industrial model of these things somewhat, which comes from school. And, you know, there's like a whole factory line of um, kind of, of, of kind of task management. And so the workplace itself becomes the kind of the, the expression of that. And so I think it's kind of interesting, like, you know, you're talking about absurdity, boredom, you know, the, the exchanging ideas too early. The, like in, and in a sense, the workplace is just, in, in a sense, is, is just a kind of symptom of, of how work works, isn't it? Yes, because I believe that at the end of the day, the purpose of the workplace is to nurture our human traits. And AI, I love it because it's asking us the question what it means to be human. And in the book, I explore the idea that it is our capacity to be absurd that makes us human and our capacity to get bored because we benefit from those things in ways that machines cannot. So the way that we benefit from boredom or adversity or absurdity is more conducive to innovation than the way in which AI will handle idleness or randomness or, um, or, or, or being disconnected by adversity. Uh, and we can thrive, uh, well, we can innovate through those mechanisms. And the, I especially believe absurdity, our ability to hold two um, propositions that cannot be simultaneously true, but if they are, they can change the future and create better futures, which is different from linear innovation. A lot of innovation that we see and a lot of innovation that organizations strive for is to do the same thing cheaper and faster. What if we make a bird made out of metal that flies? That is absurd. But then we have the airplane and that transforms societies. Uh, and that's the way that you innovate in a nonlinear way. And so how are some of these ideas, or I guess first before, I was going to ask, how, how are some of these ideas kind of resonating and landing with the types of organizations that you might typically work with? Or I guess the kind of question there, you know, what, what types of organizations are kind of open to hearing these ideas at the moment? Yes, um, at the moment, I think it's an important, very important time in work and the workplace. I thought before the pandemic, that I was going to retire writing papers on the on open plan, uh, things like that. I'm incredibly excited now about the questions that we have uh, uh, and about how work is changing and thereafter the workplace. But I see there's two types of, of organizations, so perhaps three, but those are the ones that are, after all this shakeup, they want to go back to the past. Uh, as fast as possible. If anything, they want to uh, benefit from the efficiencies gain through this process. So get, get, keep those. But again, the notion of the, the human as a clock in the machine, not as a human. So they want to capitalize on that. Let's keep those type of uh, efficiencies. But there are others ones that said, can we not do something different? So what I have experienced and perhaps that happens also with some people in your audience, is that we get fantastic conversations, you know, and, and people are truly engaged and curious about, well, tell me more about adversity, how it travels through an organization, how can I benefit from it, how can I design for it? 
So we go through different examples and how this can be done, etc. But then Monday comes and things become too difficult. And so in the book, there's a chapter about following signposts too, which is the one of an absurdity. And one of the mechanisms that we have is the carnival. So the carnival, the medieval carnival, allows you to um, see the world in the upside down. So the, the king dressed up like a peasant, the peasant like a king. And for a very temporary a moment, you can change the rules of how we see reality. One of the key things that I've seen in all the literature that I re have reviewed about exploring the absurd is that it is the temporary nature of it. You cannot dwell too much in absurdity because uh, then it's your new reality which is absurd with the reality. So it's just a glimpse that it gives you the, the provocation, but that you need to coordinate. So I'm developing sessions, trying to develop a session that allows the organization to explore the absurd. But nothing will happen if it's not then coordinated. So it's like getting drunk, but then having the morning coffee. <laughs> so if you don't follow with the morning coffee, you are not going to coordinate uh, the, what happened the night before. So what I'm ex uh, uh, working in two speeds. Let's truly go where you haven't been before, but let, otherwise, if we don't coordinate this, then it's just a curiosity. Let's make it happen. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like the, the example you're talking about, or well, the, the the kind of the two sort of strands. The the on the one hand, companies who are you know just trying to uh, exploit the changes of the last few years for efficiency gains, which of course. Uh, is a hugely powerful incentive for organizations because, you know, so exploiting the efficiency gains and then some being open to um, to explore some of these ideas, but then dealing with the challenge, like you say, of Monday morning. And and I guess my kind of the, the sort of the cynic in me would say most are the former. Most are just trying to exploit the efficiency gains. Uh, and then the, the the kind of the few are open to a, a, a kind of genuinely changing narrative on this. Would that be a reasonable uh, judgment to make? Absolutely. And um, I did my PhD on uh, adoption of innovation and, and work and the workplace. So, uh, and one of the frameworks that still resonates with me is um, Rogers' Diffusion of Innovation, which tells us that innovations are adopting in different waves, and you have the uh, innovators, early adopters, and a curve. The problem that we have is when we talk about innovation, people want to innovate at scale. It's like having a conversation. Let's let's fly, and people are already imagining uh, flying. Um, you know, with the A three eighty experience, watching a movie. Uh, in a very comfortable chair, having a dinner, drinks. Well, I mean, people die from when someone thought they could develop a plane, the Wright brothers and all that. It goes through a process, but we have lost the patience as well of uh, understanding two things that not everybody is going to follow the, the, the follow in that innovator. Um, so it's not about innovating the scale. So it's okay that there's a very big portion of organizations that are in that spectrum all the way to laggards that will adopt <laughs> when they have no other option. But I'm just focusing on, on the tipping of the bleeding edge <laughs> uh, of those organizations that are truly um, wanting to do something different. 
Um, so yeah, so so for you, this this idea um, seeded in 2016. When, when did you actually do the walk? Remind me. 2018. 2018, you did the walk. 2020, you wrote the book. Um, now, of course, 2023. I'm kind of curious. How have your because um, obviously the context has changed hugely in that time. You know, not just the pandemic, which of course was a, a kind of huge context shifter, but I guess also the kind of you know in, the increasing technical technologicalization, if that's a word, you know what I mean, of kind of workplace and understanding and the the kind of role and impact of technology in our lives. Not that the impact wasn't significant before, but of course these these things are very much more seen in a way now. How have the ideas? that you explore in the book and the perspectives you have about the future of workplace changed as a consequence of what's changed over the last few years? Some of them have um, gathered much more meaning, um, more much relevance. And uh, I, and I, in the prologue, uh, I, or one of the chapters in, in the book, I mentioned that even though all this happened before the pandemic, the, the lessons that it came out of are, are even more important now because of the changes in work, uh, of what work is, or what it means to be human. And, and this provides a more human uh, view of work um, that allows to, to create better environments. And, and not only space, because the workplace, it's not only the physical manifestation, it's not only desk and chair, it's also the cultural aspect. It's the environment in which we operate. I struggle with the translation of the pilgrim's world and the real world. I still believe they should fit. Uh, Pilgrims should see instances of that world in the real world. And one lesson, so even though the, the signposts, it took me years to, to, to digest. When I came back, I remember after the 42 days where I came back, some people knew I was doing this and they couldn't wait to meet with me and say, gosh, what did you learn? Like if it was the Messiah, the enlightened one, you know, with the, 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 the idea of work. I said, well, for many years, I thought I learned nothing. It, it took me a lot of time like uh, to start to digest. But one thing that I, did, I actually did learn during my walk was very peculiar because I didn't know this existed. But as I was walking through uh, rural roads, I saw signs uh, on farms on the regional Victoria and their New South Wales, that says horse poo two dollars. And I thought, I thought it was a novelty, you know, who's going to buy horse poo? Then I realized it was for manure to, to for the gardens and all that. So I started seeing more and more horse poo two dollars all the way to Victoria. And the moment I crossed states, New South Wales, I kid you not, it was horse poo three dollars. So I now have empirical evidence of the eternal debate that Sydney is more expensive <laughs> than Melbourne. Uh, but more than that, because I was bored beyond belief, because two of my, uh, my two rules were not to do it alone and no distractions. So I didn't have uh, podcasts or music, nothing, so that I could cultivate my thoughts. So you could imagine that I was bored beyond belief and, and, and have walking for hours, for days, for weeks. So you start thinking crazy things. So for a moment, I thought, well, what if I become a poo merchant? I can become a millionaire. If I can move one million bucks from Victoria to New South Wales, one million bucks. So 
again, I was so bored that I started doing all the maths in my head. And I have a picture uh, of how big they are. They're heavy and how I needed to change my backpack to, to fit all that. And long story short, I realized it would take me around 3,000 years <laughs> to be able to, to move that. So that's why I'm still talking to you. I'm not driving a helicopter and <laughs> being a millionaire. Uh, but So I'm not a millionaire yet. But as I was doing these calculations, one thing hit me, and that was that it's easier to literally sell shit than it is to implement the signposts. It's easy. So it's not about the quality of the idea, but it's about creating the market for those ideas to be successful. So you ask me, what is it that I'm doing at the moment or what I'm, how I'm progressing the pilgrimage? Now at the university that I'm working, I think I have here a Rubik's. Uh, here is my, my Rubik's Cube. So for this research, I'm using the analogy of the Rubik's Cube. So what, you can think about work as a Rubik's Cube, right? We're always in the process of solving it. We have never quite solved it, but we're always in the process. Sometimes it looks more solved than others. But what the pandemic did is that it gave us a very uh, good shuffle. What is interesting is how the, the cube is starting to be solved back again. Because what we're seeing is that people are solving the face of the cube of work closer to them. So employees are solving based on what it's the flexibility, working from home, uh, well-being, things that are important to them. Organizations, uh, optimizing space, return back to the office, blah, blah, blah. Developers are trying to maintain the business models of how they commercialize the workplace. So everybody's solving their own phase, but no one's solving the queue. So in this research, what we're trying to do is to understand the queue, how it moves, uh, what are the players, and how we can um, understand better. And if in the process of doing that, I hope, that we can get closer to those signposts, to this uh, destination that uh, promised to be a better place to work. So these idea of the signposts. So there are thirty-four signposts that you you explore in the book, and you know, I like, I like the idea that you know when you finish the walk, people are coming up to you. You know, what have you learned? And it's like actually in that at that time, still not enough distance, not enough, not enough time for the ideas which are sort of trying to live through you to have been seen yet. Um, and I guess presumably that the the kind of the, the process of that, this idea that somehow kind of ideas which are bigger than us do need their own time to percolate. They sort of present at when they are ready. Uh, at times they are ready when the context, you know, when the soil is right for that particular idea to to shoot somewhat. Uh, and I guess so. I'm guessing in a way that relates probably to a signpost or or few. This idea of Things taking things taking their own time to develop, their own time to percolate. Yes, but you need to push them. I, I don't think that uh, uh, you need to push them. So, so what I did is I used Mid Journey to generate images using AI. So I literally put signpost one, which is uh, exchanging ideas uh, too early and too often hinders their diversity and potential to innovate. And you can see the image that. Uh, Mid Journey created. It's incredible. So it's two people, two white old men <laughs> uh, with uh, same brain, creating the same ideas, dressed the same, producing the same ideas. I was perplexed when I saw this, how well it captured the essence of that. 
But of course, if you go to the other uh, signpost, it, which is signpost five, tell us that, that aloneness needs to be in the right uh, balance between what being alone makes to us and to the idea in itself. Because being by oneself can manifest in solitude and isolation. So solitude is the, what we strive for, the, what is the creative engine. But there's a very detrimental part of being by oneself, which can create mental, mental problems and, and really needs to be managed. The, which one you get to experience depends on the level of control and motivation that you have to be by yourself. In my case, I was very motivated and I have a lot of control. I could put the pin wherever I wanted. But even then, I sometimes I struggle with bouts of um, isolation. I felt lonely. Um, so it needs to be managed for the individual, but also for the quality of the idea. Again, being a hermit in a mountain will not change the world. You need to isolate, uh, to, to coordinate that absurdity with reality. So you need to balance that. And there are also other experiments that I mentioned in the book of um, why you need to balance that for the quality of the idea and for what it does to you as a human. So it's not about only being in isolation. It's about the balance of both. And so, so I guess... That is uh, a sort of somewhat imperfect kind of art in a way, isn't it? Kind of knowing how, you know, for what duration an idea give, is given the sort of the, the kind of the, the benefit of solitude uh, and how and when to start kind of bleeding and blending into other thoughts and perspectives. Absolutely. And God, to be quite honest, I, I don't know the answer. I, as I said before, is 90 uh, 10, 90, 10% of isolation and absurdity and all that, and 90% of socialization and, uh, and coordination. But yeah, it's, it's that balance. Um, again, if, if I can go back to, to an example of the workplace, uh, because a lot of the signposts, for example, talks about adversity, uh, boredom, uh, absurdity, and I don't suggest that the workplace should be uh, absurd, adverse, and boring. What I think is that if we go back again, you might remember this when, uh, again, around 2016, there was this sit-to-stand debate, how much time we should be standing up, how much time we should be sitting down at work. And then the, the, the rising desk became and, and sitting in the new smoking and people were obsessed about this. Well, now the guidelines are that the best position is the next one because equally bad is to be for prolonged time standing up as it's sitting down. So the guideline is the best position is the next one. What I think is that the best setting of the workplace is the next one. The problem is that we never change. We never change rationality to absurdity. We never change comfort with adversity. We never change uh, being constantly stimulated with boredom. So it's about benefiting uh, from the other side of the coin. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, there's, there's a couple of uh, questions that I'd like to just uh, explore before before we finish. One, one of those I'm kind of curious about, which is... Um, because essentially the the walk bit of the the pilgrimage, the, the the forty two days, like you're sort of talking about there, you know, there could be like so two or three days between 
um, between sort of uh, a town or something. So uh, very, very prolonged periods of um, of you on your own. Uh, and of course, uh, which I guess within the context of 42 days, essentially of you being on your own. Or, so the thing around podcasts and all of that, of course, we often, we use those things as a distraction. We use those things to get away from our mind because when you remove the distractions, all we're left with is our mind. Uh, and for many, many, many people, for very, very good reason, that is not a place to go. And I'm really curious about how, what, what, you know, how your own experience of spending time with your mind was over that period of time. So day three, I mean, after the novelty of walking to Sydney uh, wore off by day three, all my thoughts were occupied by how bored I was, by, 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 by my brain screaming for stimulus. And I was very tempted to break that rule. So the rule one was to be alone. And that was easier than to have no distractions. Um, and so a lot of the things that I experienced, and I, I look into the research uh, experiments and, and what does the research tell us. And there's been studies that suggest that people rather inflict electric shocks to themselves than to be left alone with their own thoughts just so that they can uh, focus on, on the stimulus of the electric shock. And I was talking about this in a conference, and, uh, and then a guy, uh, after I mentioned that uh, at the breakup, uh, a guy approached me and said, when I go to have a shower, I always leave uh, one of their um, earbuds listen to podcasts because I don't want to be alone. And I've been wondering if I'm going to electrocute myself one of these days. Fuck yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, so it really hit me. I said, I am the guy that I'd rather electrocute myself than be left on my, with my own thoughts. So I think we, we should have some responsibility. Um, we indulge in the... Yes, social media is out there, but we also need to reclaim control. Uh, we, 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 it's easier to point the finger to LinkedIn or to whatever. We need to be, uh, to own responsibility on that. It's painful, but boredom can be beautiful. It can be a thinking tool that allows us to see the world in ways that we're usually not um, experiencing. Did you take notes as you were going? Great question, because um, I itemized everything that I took in my backpack boots, sleeping bag, this and that. Everything that I took on my backpack was to progress the walk. There were only two things that were to progress the pilgrimage. It was a pen and a paper uh, and a notebook. That was where I was documenting the pilgrimage. Everything else was um, allowing me to walk. So yeah, I was taking notes um, about as the experience happened. And um, the scariest moment on the walk? There were a few, some, uh, one of the things that uh, worried me the most were snakes, uh, because in Australia, they're no joke. Uh, so, but that's why I decided to do it in winter, uh, which it worked because I didn't see, I only saw one snake, but I was freezing. That's another story. But the biggest problem were uh, trucks, uh, massive trucks or moving timber. They, if they'll hit you, they wouldn't even know uh, that, that they hit you. The, the, the inertia that they have, and they're massive trucks. Some of the roads were very, um, very winding and, and uh, very not a lot of um, shoulder. And I could feel the the, the draft when they, they came past me. So uh, 
trucks. Um, people kept telling me about the idiots. So, you know, when I, I was walking and people said, oh, be careful because there are a lot of idiots out there. Uh, just be mind- I'm, I start to worry about the idiots. Uh, but there's a chapter in the book about the idiots. And um, yeah, it's an interesting encounter. And so, uh, and so, uh, not to not to give away the punchline of that. So, w- w- what do you learn from idiots? That they're no idiots. So I was so worried that I actually met quite the opposite: people helping me, um, people opening themselves in ways that I have never experienced before or after. I had the experience of people telling me their hopes and dreams. Uh, in ways that I have never experienced before. And after thinking too much about it, I think it was the way I look. Because if you go into the book, you will see a picture of, oh, again, it's like, like Explorer, two backpacks. So I started thinking that if the um, I look as a, an explorer, that is the, like the epitome of someone following their dreams and hopes. And it's a tacit invitation of someone else, for someone to share their own. What is the aesthetic of work, that if we understand that we can wrap an organization with that aesthetic so that they can have better conversations with their clients and their employees and avoid the idiots. So the aesthetics of how we look, I think, matters. Uh, but uh, it's much more than, that, than good taste. It's about good design. I, and I like that because I guess the reality, of course, is to some people, Crazy man walking along the road with a backpack on either side. He's the idiot. <laughs> I was the idiot. So, so maybe they were warning me about people like myself. <laughs> um, so I guess the last question uh, is: so where, where's where? And I, you know, where is the pilgrimage going next? So at the moment, I'm trying to find this the map. I talk about knowledge maps. So mapping knowledge is beautiful because even though it's uh, abstract, you can still map it. You can map our understanding of things. And I present some knowledge maps in the book, and this will allow us to see how the industry of work and the work the workplace uh, works uh, to get to these uh, signposts. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to have convers- meaningful conversations. I hope to uh, continue this type of, of um, pilgrimage because, yeah, we're not walking, but we're in the pilgrimage. Well, thank you, Gus. So where, where can people find the book and find more information about you and your work? So it's on my website, which is at Cheves, com, And it's free because it's uh, open access. Uh, it was published by Springer. But it's not an academic book, uh, but it, it was peer-reviewed and, um, and people can download it for free or can also listen to the uh, audiobook version or, yeah, there are many resources there. Thank you. And I'll include the links to all of that in the show notes as well. Uh, Gus, thank you for uh, sharing, sharing, sharing your wanderings and your musings. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. We really hope you enjoyed that conversation as ever. If you like what we're doing, uh, if you think anyone, if you, anyone you know would benefit from listening to this conversation, enjoy it or dislike it even as much as you have, please feel free to share it. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. The sharing is the lifeblood of this. Sharing and liking, I think, are the, the currency of our modern time. So if you take a moment to, you know, share it with somebody who you think would benefit, we hugely appreciate that. Or even take some time to write a review. Uh, irrespective, 
If you like what we're doing, you can find out more if you search up peripheral-thinking.com. You'll find your way to the podcast website. You can sign up there. You can register there. You can keep abreast of everything that we're doing. We'd be sure to keep you notified as soon as the next conversations go live. Meantime, thanks again for your time. Thanks again for your ears. uh, And we look forward to you joining us next time.